Welcome one and all to the Cool Boards Podcast with me, your host, David Kipping. Now, today's episode is going to be about gravitational waves. You know, it's often said that astronomy is the oldest of sciences, but for all that time, we have not been using gravitational waves, but rather we've been looking at the universe with light. For centuries, arguably even millennia, we've been looking up at the sky using light, electromagnetic radiation, and trying to understand the cosmos, trying to understand our place within it and where we come from and where it's all going. But throughout that entire time, all of our science of the universe has been based of photons, light, packets of light energy. Now, that's great. We've learned a huge amount about the universe thanks to light, but all of that light has to be ultimately emitted or reflected through some kind of electromagnetic process. But the universe doesn't just produce light. It does all sorts of wonderful things besides that. So that's why in 2015, a kind of historic, momentous thing happened. Humanity, for the first time, opened our eyes, or really even our gravitational ears, one might say, to a completely different way of understanding the universe, to listening to her. And that was from the first gravitational wave discovery, GW150914. So this was a pair of binary black holes that were merging together. It was an incredible discovery. Of course, we had long suspected black holes were numerous and many of them were out there, but to see them merge directly was a pretty amazing discovery in of itself. But I think for many of us, the more amazing thing was the detection of gravitational waves, a breakthrough into a new window into the universe. That was with the LIGO instrument. And for the last almost a decade now, we've had, I guess, eight years of this science, we have been discovering now many dozens of these merging black hole and even neutron star events. That has been wonderful. We have learned a huge amount about the evolution and death throes of these compact objects. But at the same time, it's long been recognized there's a lot of stuff that LIGO can't see. And that's where my guest today comes in, because it is thought there is a completely different part of the spectrum, just how light has all of its different colors. We can see invisible light and there's infrared and radio. There are also different frequencies of gravitational waves. And so far, LIGO, as successful as it's been, has only been looking at one part of that spectrum. But there must be more. And in fact, there is surely more. And that especially comes with supermassive black holes, the cores of galaxies that are merging together. So my guest today is going to be diving into this topic with me, Professor Chiara Mingarelli. She's currently a professor at the University of Connecticut. She also has a joint appointment at the Flatiron Institute right in Manhattan, so kind of just down the road from where my office is. However, she will be moving soon to Yale University as a new professor during the faculty. Now, Kira and I have known each other for a long time. I have a certain uh, shared kinship with her, one might say, in terms of our science. Even though we work on very different things, we have both, throughout our careers, been looking for that which is just beyond the horizon. Both of us, myself with exomoons, her with this background gravitational wave signal from these supermassive black holes, we've both been looking for something which science predicted, but has been just beyond our fingertips technologically for so long. And yet, 
in her case especially, and well, also with exomoons, we are so close. We are just on the cusp now, finally, of breaking through. So we're gonna go through that today. You're gonna to hear all about what is a gravitational wave? How are they produced? What makes them? What is the difference between what LIGO has seen, these binary merging signals, and what are these new types of signals that Chiara is particularly interested in finding, this background signal? So I hope you enjoy today's episode, and I'll see you at the end. Chiara, my first question for you is, what is a gravitational wave? That's a great question. So a gravitational wave is a ripple in the fabric of space-time that travels at the speed of light. So this is one jumping off point where it's pretty good to explain what the difference is between Einstein's theory of gravity and the more traditional Newtonian theory of gravity. So in Newton's theory, you have two bodies with mass that attract each other because that's gravity, that attraction. In Einstein's theory, anything that has mass curves the space-time around it, and that curvature is gravity. And so that curvature means that the space-time that we live in is flexible and it can undulate like a wave. And so you can imagine something like the surface of the ocean with waves going across it. And in our universe, those space-time waves are called gravitational waves. So when we, you often see people talk about this space-time curvature and they often get like a tablecloth or something, right? And yeah. they pull it taut and yeah. put a heavy mass in the middle and you see uh, the sheet bend, which is space-time. Yeah. But that's not really a wave, right? But that's maybe what most people have in mind when they imagine this space-time curvature. That's mm -hmm. probably the, the, the typical level of understanding. Yeah. But how does that static bend change from just being static to some kind of undulation that's propagating through this sheet? How do we, yeah. how do we go to that? Well, there's, there's two ways to think about this. So I've done this tabletop experiment and I had this piece of stretchy lycra with a grid painted on it, right? Mm -hmm. And you put your heavy mass in the middle, as you explained. One way to think about just how the space-time fabric responds to masses is now to imagine, you know, letting a ball bearing or something very heavy at circle the central object. The central object, even though it's heavy, is going to move a little bit because that fabric is also moving a little bit in response to the ball bearing circling in and eventually plummeting to the center of that little gravitational well that you've created. So even in that very simple experiment, you can see that that fabric can carry information, right? Mm. It can transmit the fact that there's a wobble happening further away. But now if we talk about the space-time fabric in terms of gravitational waves and that undulation, as you mentioned, you can think about black holes that are starting to merge. And what they're doing is that they're moving through this space-time fabric. And as they plow through it and orbit each other faster and faster and faster, they're losing energy to this gravitational wave emission that they're creating. And so those waves that come from these two big black holes, which you can think of something like whales jumping in the ocean, right? Just creating these massive waves and those ripples going out in all directions. Those can eventually be detected here at the Earth. So anything, I mean, you mentioned black holes. That's obviously the example 
maybe if anyone's heard of gravitational wave detection, that's probably the context they've heard of it in because we heard, uh, what was it, 2015, LIGO, this um, amazing experiment that detected the first ever evidence of merging black holes, and it was the gravitational waves that they saw. But black holes are a special kind of object, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're almost right. like a, a hole that's been punched in space-time. Is, is this limited to just black holes? What's the, is there something special about black holes in this story? Or it, would planets do this? Do stars do this? Um, why is it that we always seem to be talking about black holes when we're talking about gravitational waves? So black holes have a special place in the heart of anyone that studies gravitational mm. waves because black holes can remain as rigid objects very, very deep into their merger process. So anything that has a mass and can be uh, accelerating around something else with the mass will create a gravitational wave. Even if I just by myself am spinning around and I'm asymmetric, I can create gravitational waves, mm. but they're too weak to be detected. So stars can also emit gravitational waves. Um, they're just, they're very weak because stars are very fluffy. So if you think about little small hard objects, something like a black hole that's very dense and very small compared to its mass, those are the perfect targets for uh, gravitational wave progenitors. Mm -hmm. So the gravitational waves will more easily come out of the system because you have very massive objects that can get really close to each other before merging. So if I had um, a pair of black holes or even a pair of neutron stars or whatever it is, a pair of two objects coming together mm -hmm. and it's creating ripples in space time as it moves along this tablecloth, mm -hmm. um, what, what determines the strength of that, of that gravitational wave and what determines the, uh, the frequency? Because waves normally have a frequency that we associate with them. So how does the conditions, the parameters of that particular setup affect the gravitational waves? Right. That's a great question. So the strength of the gravitational wave, in our jargon, we call it the strain, but it's really just how powerful the signal is. So that's a strong function of how uh, massive your system is. So is it linear? Do you, if you double the mass, Okay, I was going to say it scales like the chirp mass to the five thirds. Okay, so that's... Uh, I just didn't know if I was allowed to say almost, that or not. That's almost a <laughs> quadratic squaling, right? So if you double it, you'd almost get four times, but not quite the that's strain. Right. Yeah, right. that's okay. right. That's and maybe so a simpler way of approximating that. Yeah, <laughs> I exactly. Guess you were like, should I say this? Exactly. But yeah, our audience can handle that. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> yes, it's a very strong function of, of the mass. And so okay. black holes being very massive are very, very uh, solid targets for gravitational wave emission. And so now frequency is interesting because this is where things uh, in astronomy become interesting because the frequency is related to the period of the, uh, of the objects. And so very wide binary periods produce low frequency gravitational waves. And as the frequency increases, it's due to you know, Kepler's laws and your um, binary shrinking. And so then you can eventually get into this very tight orbit. So the reason that I said earlier that we really like black holes um, that can get close to each other to emit gravitational waves is number one, the strength of the gravitational waves gets much larger as the black holes get closer together. But then number two, we have experiments on the earth that can detect a very narrow window of gravitational wave frequency. And that frequency is designed to capture the last few orbits or a fraction of an orbit of a binary black hole merger. And so they need to be very close together, making very strong gravitational waves for them to be detectable by LIGO here on the Earth. So 
let me guess right so the frequency basically increases as the binary gets closer and closer towards each other so if this was like a a, a chord or a sound a note being played on an instrument mm -hmm. the the pitch would go up as the as the merger gets closer and closer yes. towards spiraling into each other. I feel like you're trying to trigger me to do the sound, the <laughs> spiral sound, no, which I, I will happily make. If you could listen to a binary black hole merger, the sound that you could hear, if you could hear gravitational waves, would go like this. That's With a, the final thing at the end being the chirp where they're merging. And that's when they that's when they collide, basically. Exactly. At the end exactly. Point. Yeah. Okay, so the frequency is obviously related. There must be, uh, so we have these experiments on Earth yeah. that are detecting these. Mm -hmm. The most famous one, probably, if you've heard of any of this, is probably LIGO. That's which, right. Which has detected, um, what, dozens of these events, hundreds of these events almost, at this point? Uh, almost 100. The fourth observing run just started. So, so far oh. they've had three observing runs. That's and um, yes, I think many, many, many more will be measured soon. So maybe you could... It, it, I know this is not your. This is not the experiment you work on. That's right. But maybe you can just to uh, give us some context. Give us a, a quick sense as to how LIGO detects gravitational waves. Sure. So the way that LIGO works is that you have an experiment that takes an incoming laser beam and splits it into two, and each half of this laser beam propagates out at a ninety degree angle. And so what happens is that if you're and then the laser beams hit a mirror and then they come back and they recombine at the original point. Now, if your arms in this object called an interferometer, if your arms are the exact same length, when the beam recombines with itself, it will interfere destructively. So the peaks and the troughs will cancel each other. You don't see any signal at all. But gravitational waves change the distances between objects. And so as a gravitational wave transits through this detector, one arm gets a little bit longer than the other arm and then vice versa. And they do this little arm dance, the gravitational wave dance, where one is contracting while the other one is getting longer and then vice versa. The other arm contracts and the other one gets longer. And so this creates a signal that you can measure. Okay, so it's, we have these um, two arms which we're using and we're basically literally seeing the distance on earth the, the space itself stretch yeah. and that's how we're detected that's kind of because that it must change your mindset the way you think about um, living on earth yeah. knowing that your body your atoms right are being constantly jiggling back and forth yeah they're Does constantly that, it, stretching and squashing and this detector can actually give you a way of seeing it with light because light will always travel at the speed of light even if a gravitational wave is going through it like light is traveling at the speed of light and so your your arms are like these meter sticks that help you to understand how the distance is, is changing one relative to the other and this change is so small it's the fraction of a size of a proton over three miles or five kilometers so it's very 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 small now the given these waves travel you know often from you know across from other galaxies right the, these are often yes. extra galactic signals that we're detecting the universe is of course incredibly vast so we can imagine in one particular galaxy there is a almost like a, a big stone these this black hole that's moving around on this tablecloth mm -hmm. and it's creating this wave that we detect but it, it's surely not the only 
thing that's moving in the universe. The universe is full of moving stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this simple idea we might have seems uh, like it's missing something, right? This sheet, like if I if I had a, a, a lake or a, or a pond and I dropped one stone in it, you'd get one ripple. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what's happening, right? There's, it's almost like raindrops all over this. There must be stuff happening all over the universe, mm -hmm. all over the galaxies. Mm -hmm. And how does that what does LIGO see this? Does it see a constant barrage of, of signals and or is it missing some extra signals that it's yet to detect? So something that you're describing is called a gravitational wave background. And so this is the superposition of all of these gravitational wave signals that are happening at a similar frequency. So in the detector, you have this buildup of all of these signals, and there's so many of them that you can't tell one from the other. So this creates what we call uh, a gravitation wave background. In the LIGO band, at very high frequencies, this hasn't been detected yet because the mergers happen on such short timescales that they're they're just really little bursts of gravitational waves that you see. Mm -hmm. They don't really spend enough time uh, and there aren't enough simultaneous ones happening for there to be the buildup. So it's of just this. like a few seconds, that's all you get? Or? It's even a fraction of a second wow. of signal that you see. Yeah. And so there's not enough signals at any one time to create that background yet. But before so, then, it was still making a gravitational wave. It's just that that wasn't detectable. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. It was so, too low a pitch almost or too uh, low a, a volume level for, for it to pick up. That's right. The volume mm. was too low. Okay. Exactly. Right. But as we develop more sophisticated instruments, then we can dig in, go down to lower frequencies and find things at lower volumes. And so as we do that, then I think we'll be able to start seeing more of a stochastic background in the LIGO band at those, the relatively high frequencies. So one thing that we haven't touched on yet that might be useful is the whole frequency range of gravitational waves that you can yeah. detect. I think in terms of astronomy, we're really used to thinking about the wavelengths of light. And the optical, which you can see with your eyes, and then you so it's have like hundreds of nanometers, sort of like tiny, tiny scales. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now with gravitational waves, it's a completely different kind of spectrum. So it has nothing to do with light at all. When I was first starting to study gravitational waves, this really blew my mind because mm. when you think of astronomy, you think, okay, I have infrared radiation, I have optical radiation, UV, X-ray, whatever you want. This has absolutely nothing to do with light. This mm. is the fabric of space-time itself that moves and the frequency of that motion, which is for me, it was so mind-blowing to think that there's a completely independent spectrum. And sometimes we call it gravitational radiation, an analogy with electromagnetic radiation yeah. or light. And so LIGO is very sensitive to high-frequency gravitational waves. But our, so those chirps, basically. Those chirps, yeah. exactly. And it's so high-frequency that if we could hear gravitational waves, there's a one-to-one -one mapping to the human audio band, which is a really neat thing. That's just a complete coincidence, wow. but you could actually hear the gravitational waves that LIGO hears if your ears were gravitational so wave that detectors. That you did of the whoop, that, yeah. was, that was actually pretty close that to you, what we would hear. You if, would, exactly. Yeah, okay. You would hear the right. whoop. You weren't kidding. Yeah. No, not joking. <laughs> yeah. That is for real what okay. it would sound like at, that, at, at those frequencies. And so then it makes sense to think, you know, there's all of these different processes that are happening, as you mentioned, in different galaxies far away in the universe. Well, what else is happening? 
Well, there's actually tons of stuff happening at different frequencies. And so we have no way right now of accessing the middle range frequency where you would have uh, very small, supermassive black holes that are merging. Oh, small, supermassive. Yes, that sounds the, like an oxymoron. What I do love, you mean by that? <laughs> I, I fondly call them baby supermassive black holes. Okay. They are about 100,000 to a million times the mass of the sun. So similar to Sagittarius, a star that's at the center of our galaxy. These are very small, supermassive black holes. They barely made it to supermassive black hole, but they are there. But, mm -hmm. but they're small. That's okay. Uh, and then, and they merge with other supermassive black holes. But the largest gravitational waves are created by the mergers of supermassive black holes that are a billion times the mass of the sun. So a thousand times more massive than anything that's at the center of our galaxy. This is like kind of like gargantuan from uh, Interstellar. Right? Exactly, the, the, gargantua. Yeah. That's yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Uh, that kind of black hole is what I'm really curious about investigating. Now, those black holes, when they merge with other similar black holes, create gravitational waves that are a million times more powerful than what LIGO has seen so far. But they're rare because those supermassive black holes live in the centers of galaxies. And so you need a galaxy merger to create that kind of supermassive black hole merger. And so while the signals are much, much more powerful, they're rare. Um, but we win in the sense that these signals are so powerful that you can start detecting them 25 million years before they merge. Mm -hmm. And so wow. with LIGO, you have black holes that are maybe 10 to 100 times the mass of the sun, and they're merging. And you see them at high frequency a fraction of a second before they merge. But with these very low frequency um, gravitational wave sources from supermassive black holes, we detect them with a different experiment that we can talk about in a second called pulsar timing arrays. With those, they are in our detector for 25 million years. So they're very slow in spiraling. So it's like a constant static hum almost it, from this where, versus the short, sharp, someone shouting just for a, a brief moment, which you get with small black holes. These guys, they're just constantly screaming at almost a, a, a very loud, but a, a, a lower frequency. Is that right? Right. Like a, like a tenor holding a note, right? Yeah, at the okay, end of an right, opera, just kind yeah. of hanging out there for an incredibly long time. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <okay. laughs> exactly. And, and so supermassive black holes are, are amazing. And because they spend so much time merging, then you can start to have multiple mergers happening at the same time, even though they're very rare. The fact that they take so long to merge means that there's enough of them at any particular frequency in our detector to create a gravitational wave background. And so pulsar timing array experiments that go after these supermassive black holes are first signal that we ever wanted to find was the gravitational wave background, because that should, for us, be the loudest signal. Mm. Whereas LIGO at higher frequencies is always looking for those, you know, little quick chirps from the, the final shout from these stellar mass black hole mergers. So, yeah, let's talk about how we detect those then. So you, you mentioned this, that um, LIGO cannot see the most extreme merging events we can imagine of right. gargantua merging into another gargantua. Yeah. And yet we believe these things should be happening more or less as a process of, otherwise, how do you make such big black holes, right? There must be a process of merging of smaller black holes to eventually get to the big ones. Um, and yet obviously LIGO 
can't see them because the frequency is just out of its range. So uh, that's probably that's a problem, right? Because if the frequency is low, that means the wavelength is kind of reciprocal. It's very, 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 very long, mm -hmm. and presumably LIGO just physically is too small to see those wavelengths. That's how, could, right. how could you have a detector bigger than the Earth, though? Like how do how how do we get those very, very low frequencies? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this question. I mean, it's the perfect question. <laughs> this is your passion project right here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is what it's all about. So, so you're right. These black holes have, you know, when they're creating gravitational waves, they have periods of decades, right? Or their their wavelengths are light years long which is really incredible to think about. And so you can't build a detector on the uh, Earth. A ripple in space-time yeah. that's light years across. Light years long, wow. exactly. So it's really incredible. So you can't build a detector on the Earth that, that detects this. So what we do is that we use pulsars in our galaxy to look for these signals. So a pulsar is a neutron star that has its spin axis misaligned with its magnetic field axis. And so every time it spins around, it's like a lighthouse. It sends a flash of radio waves. And so it does this so with such amount of precision that you can time them down to better than 100 nanoseconds over a decade. Right, that's yeah. one part in a million billion. So like almost like atomic clocks, like they're the most precise clocks. That's we right. Have Until in the 2012, they were better than atomic clocks, but Whoa. then the atomic clocks caught up and now they're better, which okay. is fair, right? That's yeah. good. Yeah. But they're but you don't have atomic clocks on Alpha Centauri though, so this is kind of it's no point for you. There's no value to that. You exactly. want atomic clocks all over the universe. To do this. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so within our own galaxy, we have all of these pulsars that have incredible timing. And so if we go back to when we first started our chat, we were talking about what is a gravitational wave. Well, it changes the distances between objects. It's a ripple in the fabric of space-time. And so these ultra-stable clocks with these gravitational waves are moved slowly towards the Earth and then away from the Earth by these mm. gravitational waves. And so the signals will arrive early when the pulsars are closer to the Earth and then later when they're further away. So is this, is this just the same as the Doppler effect of like an ambulance that's coming towards you and it's, the pitch sounds higher when it's coming towards you? It's similar. It's similar. So you can think about it as red shifting and, and blue shifting, but it's also like the space time is physically changing right. by, you know, about one meter per light year. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> that sounds like nothing, but these clocks are so precise that makes it detectable. It, exactly. Imprint. It makes it detectable. That's that's exactly right. And so that's the only way that you can measure these gravitational waves right now is by actually turning our whole galaxy into a gravitational wave detector by timing all of these pulsars. And so if you see you, so imagine you go to your radio telescope, you're at Jodrell Bank, or you're at the Green Bank Telescope, and you're timing a pulsar. You have to go to this pulsar, and then you time it for about 30 minutes, and you get a timestamp. And then you go back in two weeks, and you time it for another 30 minutes, and you get another timestamp. And you do this for 15 years or for 20 years. And over that time, you'll start to see that your expected arrival time from your pulse is different from your actual arrival time of your pulse. And that's where the gravitational wave signal is. Now, if you see that in just one pulsar, 
that could be anything. Maybe there's an error in your instrument. Maybe something happened with the interstellar medium. There's so many things that could go wrong. And so we time a whole array of pulsars with Nanograv. We have over 60 pulsars that we're timing. And with the international community, we have 85 pulsars that we're timing together. And so when you These see- These are all pretty local? They're pulsars? all within like around a kiloparsec. They're all within our galaxy. Parsecs. So what's that like 3,000 light years? 3,000 light yeah. years, that's mm -hmm. right. Um, there is one pulsar that's not in our galaxy, but it's in the Large Magellanic Cloud. So I'm not. It's not like it's Andromeda. A little galaxy. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, so this pulsar timing or experiment looks at all of these pulsars to try to see if there's a gravitational wave signal present in all of them, not all just in one of them, mm -hmm. but in all of them, all at a once. A simultaneous defect in their timings. So. Yeah, let me just understand a little bit more of this timing. So yeah. the you, it's like a clock, but you you know like the tick tick tick, mm -hmm. and the ticks are not coming in exactly when you expect them to come in. Mm -hmm. um, let's say they get slower. Do they then go back faster again and then slower again? It kind of it periodically bounces around some average rate that you would expect for the clock. And if so, what is the rate at which the clock is? returning back to its sort of baseline level? What is what is the time scale of this effect that you're looking for, this variation? Right. So gravitational waves travel at the speed of light. And so it is, um, it's going back to these pulsars, which spin around about, they spin around hundreds of times a second. They have a mass that's one and a half times the mass of the sun. And they would fit into the island of Manhattan, right? Imagine putting the sun, shrinking it down to Manhattan and putting it in a blender. Mm. Like that's one of these pulsars that we time. I don't know if I can imagine that, but yeah. <laughs> like they're it's, it's really insane objects. Yeah. And so the ticks arriving early is because the pulsar came, you know, that much closer to us. So the gravitational waves travel at the speed of light and the... the frequency of the gravitational wave is set by the origin of the gravitational waves. So that could be uh, a binary black hole, so two supermassive black holes that are merging, or it could be this gravitational wave background. So that gravitational wave background is this, you know, superposition from the cosmic merger history of all of the supermassive black holes. And even then, you know, you can bend them into different frequencies because over time they will evolve. And so you'll have more of them at very low frequencies and then slightly fewer as you go to higher frequencies because then they start merging. So you get fewer sources as you go to higher and higher frequencies. Yeah. So, so there's it's like a, the orbital period of, if it was too gargantuous, it's the orbital period of those two objects around each other that, yeah. that corresponds to the kind of the the restoring time for this clock to go back to its nominal ticking level. Is well, the, the ticking level, I think, you know, if you want to know what the regular ticking level is, it's when you go and you measure it, you know, for 30 minutes, then yeah. any, you know, gravitational wave period that has a, you know, this deformation power over a decade isn't going to matter over, over 30 minutes. Yeah. But you, you really start to see that when you have, you know, a full, period come in and then it's going to give you a timing offset of something like 100 nanoseconds over that decade. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, and then you can start over again. So over your 30 minute observation period, nothing, you can't really see anything happening. It, you really have to time it for over a decade in order to start to see 
that space-time deformation and your clock slowly getting closer and then going back away and then slowly getting right. closer. It's interesting on a human level that it's roughly a decade, right? right? Because that's kind of the time scale for doing something ambitious in our lives, but not if it was a thousand years, we probably would never bother with attempting this. And if it was much shorter, maybe it'd be too fast for us to be able to set it. It's interesting that it's at that that balancing point where it's just, you just have to invest, which you have done in your career. Yes, right? that's right. And so you've been, how long have these experiments have been going for decades then at this point? That's right. So right now I'm part of the Nanograv experiment, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. And we are, um, right now we have a 15 year data set and that should be published very soon. Mm -hmm. And um, that's going to be very interesting for gravitational waves and for um, gravitational wave background searches, searches for individual supermassive black hole binary systems. So we've previously, we started with a five-year data set and then had a nine-year data set and then 11 years and then 12 and a half years. And now we have 15 years. So my colleagues who do the actual timing have been at this for the better part of 20 years, because mm. of course, as you know, as a research scientist, you already have to have some sort of preliminary motivating evidence before anyone gives you money. Right. And so they've been at it for a very, very long time, timing pulsars every two weeks for the better part of 20 years and some of them even longer than that. So, yeah. you know, my contributions to the field are really developing models of how the supermassive black holes merge and what kinds of signatures we can see in the gravitational waves that tell us about the environments surrounding black holes and how quickly they should be merging or what's affecting the evolution of their mergers. Are there stars interacting with them? How much gas is there? Yeah, what so what, the... what would we learn if, if, if I showed you a discovery tomorrow? Mm -hmm. What would be the first thing that you would be comparing to your models that you'd be like, I want to find out about this? What would be that thing that you'd be looking into? One of the really important things is understanding how the amplitude of the gravitational wave background evolves as a function of the frequency of the background. So we have a lot of models that tell us, you know, if your binaries are circular, if they're only interacting with gravitational waves, how should they evolve as a function of frequency? So the, the first- The orbits are circular. The orbits mean, are circular. The, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. And so I would want to see you know, does the measurement actually match this prediction or are things more complicated in nature? Mm. Are the orbits slightly elliptical and elongated? Uh, how important is it if the black holes aren't the same mass, if one is 10 times larger than the other? Are the black holes interacting with gas and stars? That would have an observable signature at very low frequencies because that corresponds to a very wide binary separation. Mm. And when they're very widely separated, then interacting with gas and stars is a much more effective way of reducing the energy in the system than emitting gravitational waves. Mm. So gravitational waves are only really important when they're very, very close to each other, but at these wider binary separations or very low frequencies, then gas and stars become very important. So I would want to see, is the spectrum just, you know, a kind of diagonal line or is it mostly a diagonal line but then something funny happens at very low frequency and does that you know diagonal line change shape and what can that tell us about the 
presence of gas and stars around this cosmic population of supermassive black holes? It's a classic theorist answer. You, you look for that which breaks the models. Yes, I want to break the models. I want <laughs> yeah. all of the simple models to be broken. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, they are. I mean, so would you, what's, I have so many questions about this. What would be the uh, sweet spot distance? Like how, you said it's of order of a billion solar masses would mm -hmm. be kind of the, the mass of these objects combined together. Um, obviously we don't have that in our own galaxy. So this would be an extra galactic object, but how far away is this experiment sensitive to? And what is the, if you had to guess, like what would be the most likely uh, scale, how far, I guess I'm wondering, are we looking back in terms of light travel time to high, what we'd call high redshift? Are we looking back to events which happened millions, even billions of years ago, or are we looking fairly local? What sorts of events are we likely to see? It's It would be right in the middle. So you're, yes, is the answer to your question. <laughs> so all of the above. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. So if there were, uh, a nearby pair of supermassive black holes that were starting their merger process, um, then if it was within something like 100 megaparsecs or what we call our, our local group, then you would have detected it already, you know, depending on the mass. With it's LIGO a very or with pulsar timing? With pulsar timing. Okay. So the, an interesting fact that really not a lot of people know is that these supermassive black holes will merge before they ever get to the LIGO band. So their frequency evolution will stop at around 10 to the minus 6 hertz. Uh, and the pulsar timing array experiment operates at 1 to 100 nanohertz. So well, this is super, super why, why low frequency. does that frequent happen? That's confusing. Why yeah. doesn't it go all the way up to those it, same high frequencies are getting very, very... Event horizons touching almost, right? Yeah, the event horizons touch at that, you know... We call this because the, they're just so big. And exactly wow, at, okay. at those very low frequencies, like that's when they merge. They have this thing called an innermost stable circular orbit. For any expert that's listening, or ISCO, yeah, and their ISCO frequency uh, is at ten to the minus six hertz. And so, and post merger, there's nothing that gets into those higher frequencies. Like the you might imagine this sing the two singularities, even once they're within event horizon distances. Mm -hmm. Are going through some complicated right. gyration and merging process. Right. So I, I believe that the, the super theorists, I'm a theorist, but these people are even one level of abstraction beyond <laughs> me, call these echoes. Yeah. Uh, and those might be at in like the Lisa band. And so still low frequency, but nothing to my knowledge and will Lisa ever. Is Lisa is the space based gravitational wave detector. So that that's operates. something that doesn't exist yet, but. That's we're right. To build. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's been approved. The European Space Agency is leading this project, and NASA is a junior partner. And this will look for gravitational waves from the baby supermassive black holes, and then also a gravitational wave background from the galactic population of white dwarfs. Okay. Which is cool. I always think it's funny when people say Lisa, and it's like, Who's Lisa? Like, who's this yes, person? Yes, She's yes. going to do all this stuff, the, this one graduate student? Or? Exactly. Lisa is amazing. <laughs> that Lisa will only join us in 2034 or maybe She's 2038. Still exactly. In, uh, high school right now. Yeah. Lisa is expensive and it's taken us a while to get her, but she should be here soon. Yeah. yeah hurry up, Lisa. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, with all this science, this uh, obviously, this, this, this idea of looking for coherent changes between these pulsars to detect these uh, these objects. There's a lot of physics about the pulsars, which is interesting as well. So um, 
I'm sort of most familiar with pulsars because they were obviously one of the first methods used to look for exoplanets. That's right. Um, Wasn't the first exoplanet discovered around correct. a pulsar? Yeah, the yes. first the first accepted one. There were claims before that that ended up being correct and some that were wrong that actually predated that. Oh. Um, but that was the one that we were all like, okay, that's there's no doubt, right? There's yeah. no doubt at this point. Um, and so, yeah, that makes me wonder, like, if these pulsars all have planets around them, which probably isn't true, but, you know, there's some companions around them which are wobbling. You might think that's an extra source of noise to some degree from your purpose. That's annoying for you. you know, the planets are just a nuisance for yes. you. Yes, And similarly, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I've seen some discussion of even the surface topography of these pulsars of having like mountain, like we call them mountain ranges, but there might just be micrometer deviations. But mm -hmm. even that mountain range could affect the spins. It could cause them to almost like a unstable rotate to have slight gyrations. Mm -hmm. How much of those extra complications do you have to worry about? Or does the coherence issue mean you can just sweep all of that under the rug? This is a very complicated answer. I'm going to go step by step. So number one, the pulsar planets. So those would show up as, for us, it would be a high frequency noise, right? Wherever the planet is for us, for our experiment, given that it has baselines of decades, mm. the pulsar planet would likely have some sort of, you know, would be some high frequency noise. And we don't have a lot of sensitivity in that part of the detector. So it's not a huge issue. Even if it's very long period, like a Jupiter? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know of that being the case, but it doesn't mean that it's not possible. Okay. Yeah. The, the shtick of the pulsar timing array experiment is that you're looking for a common signal in all of the pulsars. And so each pulsar has different noise properties, and that could be planets, that could be some weird deformation. But the common signal that's in all of the pulsars should be the gravitational wave right. signal. Right, because even if they all have Jupiters, yeah. those Jupiters aren't going to be all in exactly the same period, at exactly the same phases. Yes. That's not going to happen. But it will still um, almost be like bigger error bars for you. It'll be right. noise, exactly. Yeah. So it does induce noise. The noise isn't correlated. So the more pulsar pairs you have that you can, you know, look for this common signal in, the better you are at extracting that signal. But noise is a huge problem because mm. our detector, it's it's the whole galaxy. It's all of these pulsars in the galaxy, and we can't turn the pulsars on and off because we think something weird happened. And we have one data set that spans, you know, 15 years and almost 17 years now, if you include our more recent data. And you can't just like wipe it all away and start over again, you know, without a huge penalty. Yeah. And so creating custom noise models for each one of the pulsars is this new this new priority within nanograv that's really taking off and is really important. And I, you know, even have a graduate student working on this project because there's tons of things that can affect the pulsar arrival times. One of the pulsars is very close to the ecliptic and you can actually see the solar wind go through the pulsar pulses. And it's really crazy, but you can see these like perfect, you know, peaks in yeah. all of the pulsar arrival times and you're trying to model the noise because you can actually see the addition of noise to this pulsar as it gets close to the sun and mm -hmm. as the pulsar beam travels close to the sun, there's all of this additional material for it to go through. And, you know, it's really incredible to see it. That's just one source right. of noise. But then there's the interstellar medium and, and you know, changing 
column densities of electrons between us and the pulsars, even before you get to your very nice example of, you know, the pulsar itself. You know, what do we know about pulsar magnetospheres or emission mechanisms or all of these? It's almost even taboo to say the words because no one has any idea and it <laughs> makes the earth shake. And so all of that stuff is uh, big unknowns. But for the sake of gravitational wave detectors, it's not our primary source of noise that we're concerned about because it's they're so uncorrelated that it shouldn't create a signal. Now, if for whatever reason, we actually don't understand pulsars as well as we think we do. And there is some sort of common deformation that's happening in all of the pulsars. It's possible that we could detect that kind of noise source because it would also be the same in all of the pulsars. And that's really what we're looking for in this array is what's the same signal in all of these pulsars. And so theorists like myself and my colleagues have created models of what that signal should look like. But if we missed out something mm. that's like what's happening at the pulsar, then we could accidentally be picking that up too when we're doing the data analysis, when we're but looking for those so, signals. That seems so contrived though, because even if there's um, like the sun has uh, what we call P modes, right? It, it vibrates uh, star quakes, essentially like earthquakes, star quakes on the sun. So maybe there's something like that, some kind of gyration happening within these stars, but it'd be so weird if they all phased up it seems it, it would be very weird. It just seems like unless you know, there's, you have like this cue from Star Trek just playing like a, a, a weird trick in us, like some super omniscient being who's just trying to screw us over. How could these disparate regions possibly be related to each other? And so, I guess what I'm wondering is, it seems to me from the outside that your false positive rate, which we're always concerned about in science, false positive rate experiments, your false positive rate would be very, very low. And yet, what's uh, maybe we can talk about this recent? There was a recent uh, claim of a possible signal, I think, a year or two ago, from uh, Data Reese. Maybe you know more about this than I do, but I remember reading that uh, people weren't convinced yet. Right? There was a, a some kind of hum that looked consistent with a pulsar timing gravitational wave signal. People didn't believe it, and I was thinking, well, what else? What else could it be? What, what am I missing? Like, mm -hmm. what are the false positives here? Why? Mm -hmm. Why don't we? claim that that is the first detection and maybe you can give us the backstory of that. Sure, of course. So this was a really exciting paper and I completely agree with you that it would be very contrived to have this exact same signal being in all the pulsars. What I'm saying is that it's possible, but I completely agree with you that it's just highly unlikely. I really mm -hmm. don't think that that's the case. Just a statistical fluke because there's 85 maybe yeah, some extreme coincidence or something. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the false positive rates are computed using a technique called sky scrambles, where you take the pulsars and their positions in the sky, and then you randomize them. And then you say, like, do I see the same signal? Or, and mm. that would be a false positive. Mm. And so we have to do a lot of these sky scrambles to establish you know, the detection statistic and how much you believe things and what's the false alarm probability. So that's a detection-induced, a detector-induced false positive? Or is that an astrophysical false positive in that case. I'm not sure I if understand you the, what you mean. If you do mean. this sky scrambling experiment yeah. Yeah. and you, you get false positives, yeah. are, are those, um, th is that purely sort of a uh, detect, is that just a, a chance of sort of the random noise in the data structure almost rather than the universe itself is not producing a false positive. That's right. It's in the detector. Okay. And our detector is the pulsar Earth baseline. Right. It's not like a star quake that are all in phase or planets that are all in phase. That's this is right. something that's with right. the instruments itself. That's right. Okay. That's that's the sky scramble. You're talking about cosmic variance, which could be 
another weird thing that happens. Cosmic variance. That's so, right? I love that term. What does that mean? <laughs> it just means that, you know, what the, the signals that we predict are this, you know, ensemble average from what we understand, what we think the universe should look like. But of course, we do this over multiple realizations of the universe in mm. our in our models. So we can come up with, like you say, you know, one model of the universe stuff looks like this, and then it looks like this, and then it looks like that. And which one did we actually end up with? Right? We don't know yet because yeah. we haven't measured it yet. We know what the average looks like, so we know what the signal should look like. But there's, it's possible that we're in a very weird universe where some sort of contrived solution is just what we happen to end up with. And so mm. what we're trying to understand is, you know, if I see some sort of bump where I think that there should be a flat line, I guess the astrophysical false alarm is in that sense, like in how many versions of the universes that I modeled did I get that bump, right? right. And so that's that's different from the sky scrambles. That's if I randomly arrange pulsars, do I see the same signal? because yeah. it just happens to work out that way. Yeah. And then the astrophysical one is I've made all of these models of the universe and um, you know, what's the significance of this event happening that I think that I see, you know, how many times does that happen on average? Right, right. Um, so that, that's your false alarm probability question. So you asked me another no, one. I, guess, I couldn't well, hold me, the thread. Let me. I kind of wondering. <laughs> we were wondering about this detection. So there was this oh, that's claim right. detection. Yes, I of guess course. I'm, this is in the twelve and a half year data. And yeah. So do we? Do you believe what's the, what's going on there? Do you believe this? What does this? What does this mean? Where are we at with this? Right. Totally. So, so the gravitation wave background signal evolves very slowly in time. If you look at what you know, how the signal should evolve, it should evolve as the square root of time and as the number of pulsars in your array. And so what you would expect to see starting out is some sort of red noise, a very low frequency signal that's, you know, that's starting to become this common signal in all the pulsars. And that's mm -hmm. what was found in the nanograph 12 and a half year data. We saw this, you know, uh, signal that was in all of the pulsars that had an amplitude that was exactly what we expected it to be for, you know, to be coming from the cosmic population of supermassive the black hole binaries. The same in all directions as well? Does it, is there a directionality to it? There is very likely a directionality to it. In fact, that's what a large part of my PhD work was based on. We call it anisotropy in okay, the background, yeah. but no one actually needs to know what that word means. It just means that there's more power in one direction than the yeah. other direction. Um, and so with the nanograv data, there hasn't been um, anything published on anisotropy in the background. Right now, we assume it looks the same in all directions as a first order There's search. no paper? It's just uh, like a press release or something? Or was there... Oh, no. So so the, the 12 and a half year data, it was a search for an isotropic background. And what we found was this amplitude, this that, you know, that looks like it could potentially be coming from supermassive black holes, okay. gravitational waves from supermassive black hole binaries. But there's a second part to the detection, which we didn't see. And this is a correlation function. So when we're looking for the signal, what we do is that we cross-correlate all of the pulsars in the array. And cross-correlation is when you take, you know, you take two time of arrivals and 
you, you know, say like, what's common in these? Like, can I find what's common in these? And then you take another one and then you take another one and you mm -hmm. do this with all of the time of arrivals and all of your pulsar data streams and you look for common signals. So there's two signals that should be present when you do this. One is this amplitude of the gravitational wave background. And the second is called the Hellings and Downs curve or this correlation function. And so that tells you how the amplitude of the background is modulated as a function of the angular separation of pulsar pairs. It means that if you have two pulsars that are close together on the sky, they'll have a maximum signal. And as you move one pulsar further away, that correlation drops down so that the amplitude becomes lower and then it comes back up higher at the end. So it has this almost like a quadrupolar, almost like a cosine shape, except the end point is half of the beginning of the first point. So between zero and 180 degrees on the sky, you can predict how the amplitude of the gravitational wave background is modulated by the geometry of your pulsar timing array. So what was detected, maybe I'm simplifying this way too much, but for the sake of a useful analogy to try and get our head around this, there was a hum yeah. that was detected that yeah. amongst all of these 85 yes. pulsars, but you're also wanting to see almost like um, when two singers harmonize with each other and they're, they're, co they're, they're correlated with each other when they're harmonizing. You just don't uh, see that cross-correlation yet. It doesn't mean it's not there, but just the, the detector isn't quite there yet with the amount of data it has to see those harmonies between the different stars. That's right. That's okay. right. So we can't see those cross correlations manifesting in the way that we would expect for a gravitational wave background. But we do hear the hum. So yeah, we can hear the chorus, but we, I guess we don't know what the shape of the choir looks like. Yeah, it's, the sound is going to maybe stretch it's a little a bit too far, Yeah, exactly. We've stretched it and squashed it. Exactly. So many mixed metaphors. Okay. okay. But uh, but definitely, so so that's the thing. There was the hum, but there was no uh, Hellings and Downs curve or this additional spatial correlation term in the 45 pulsars that were in the nanograph 12 and a half year data. And uh, upcoming data releases, if you want to believe that we've actually detected a signal from the cosmic population of supermassive black holes, you need to have those two pieces. So you need to have the amplitude and these additional correlation terms. So any detection needs both of those. So the 12 and a half year data had part of it, but not the second half. So you, you remain skeptical about it at this point? I am confident that it should be detected very soon. You probably know more than you're letting on here, I think. <laughs> so that's exciting. So it seems it seems like we're on the cusp. I would say that that's a very accurate statement to make. Yes, okay. we're definitely on the cusp of detecting the gravitational wave background. And it's also a nice check to say, you know, if you believe that what was in the 12 and a half year data was a real signal, you know, how, how many more years and how many more pulsars should we add to see the full signal, right, with all of the additional correlation terms. Now, when we when we uh, got the first LIGO detections of merging black holes, as you said, it was a profound moment in astronomy because it opened up an entirely new way of seeing the universe. Mm -hmm. And there is an entire new field of astronomy, essentially, of studying these merging black holes. Yeah. Um, in the same way, how would you compare that moment to the 
the cusp of moment we're on yeah. of detecting these background gravitational waves, will there be similarly an explosion of interest, you think, think in these signals? And what is the types of uh, science you can imagine people using this for? I could talk about that for hours. Um, but yes, yeah, so so LIGO making the first detection was, you know, like Galileo holding up a telescope and, you know, even just seeing the first photons of light, right, mm. that were far away that you couldn't see with your naked yeah. eye. And so what we're about to do with pulsar timing arrays is something very similar, just at a different frequency. So it's like the first radio telescope, someone realizing that light actually has multiple wavelengths or frequencies and saying, wait, there's optical light. So shouldn't there be, shouldn't there be x-rays? Shouldn't there be radio waves? Shouldn't there be something in the infrared? And so now what we're doing with gravitational waves is saying, okay, we've got one part of the spectrum and we know what's going on over there. That's cool. Let's keep building more telescopes. But now we have a different telescope that we can detect different signals with. So LIGO is great for detecting, you know, stellar mass, binary black hole mergers. But with pulsar timing arrays, you can detect supermassive black hole binaries, but you can also detect things like primordial gravitational waves from inflation. Hmm. Right at the beginning of the universe, you had these quantum fluctuations uh, in the universe that were blown up to the entire size of the universe. And some of those quantum fluctuations start freezing out at different frequencies. And so you can actually detect them in all of the gravitational wave detectors, hmm. which is very cool. Um, you can detect cosmic strings with pulsar timing arrays. What, tell us what a cosmic string is. A cosmic string is if the best definition that I found this that I think is understandable was from Wikipedia. And that's, you know, mad, I know, I know. <laughs> Astrophysicists are going to Wikipedia to find it. Okay. For real. But, yeah. but like, it's great. Stuff on there. It's, yeah. it's, you know, this, this phase transition in the early universe. And what is a phase transition? If you drop an ice cube in a glass of water and it cracks, there you go. Okay. Cosmic string. Yeah. So something like that happened in the very early universe. And that string has, is very, very, very dense. And it's like this, you know, imagine just this dense space-time deformation and it can make uh, kinks and cusps and it can make loops. It can interact with itself and is can interact with- Is this connected to string theory or is this completely Some separate? are. Okay. Some are. Cosmic superstrings are related okay. to string theory uh, and other cosmic strings are not. But basically the cosmic string can interact with itself. It can make a loop and the loop pinches off and evaporates by radiating gravitational waves. Hmm. And this is all theoretical. It hasn't been observed yet, but this is another kind of thing that could create gravitational waves. Right. And so anyone who does this very, you know, theoretical high energy astrophysics is very excited by nanograv and other pulsar timing ray experiments potentially detecting these gravitational waves because they would say, look, you found a signal, but you don't know what made that signal. Um, to be fair, that's true. That's going to take a few more years to be really sure that the signal comes from supermassive black holes and not a combination of sources. Some of it could be primordial from, you know, the, from the Big Bang and inflation. Some of yeah. it could actually be from cosmic strings. Like, who am I to tell the universe how it should work? Like, maybe that's actually what happened. But I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that general relativity sounded very fanciful and exotic to people, you know, when Einstein announced it. And they're like, wait a second, you're telling me that space-time fabric is 
doing what and curving what and doing what and why do we need to know this and this is crazy but but who knows right it, it sounds exotic today but it's just i think because we're not used to it i mean that's got to be a Nobel prize winning discovery a cosmic string that's that just sounds like uh one of the most awesome discoveries i can possibly imagine it's just a yeah. much, and again it's that that's something that would be totally indetectable with photons with light it's it's it, a unique capability of gravitational wave astronomy. It is a very strong capability in gravitational wave astronomy. I'm not sure that I know enough to say that it's totally unique. It's totally unique to you know more, pulsar timing arrays yeah. exactly, but it's also in an episode of Star Trek, and I think that the Q mm -hmm. might actually make an appearance in that one too because Q is the best. <laughs> he's uh, <laughs> he's a misfit, but we love him. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he might be back in the next season. I heard, so I'm looking forward to that. We'll see. Oh my goodness. Um, this is very important. Yeah, so we're I'm so glad I'm here I today. Love, I, any excuse <laughs> to talk about Star Trek, I'm, I'm straight in there. Um, so this is pretty uh, an amazing moment, potentially in astronomy, that we're seeing all these changes. And um, I'm kind of curious about your journey in this as well. Uh, I feel like we have a lot in common with our scientific journeys and very, you know, working very different things. Uh, we've both been searching for something for more than a decade mm -hmm. um, or working on searching for maybe not just us but many in collaboration with others and it's mentally i've often found that quite difficult right to look for something that um it, it's it's harder to do something completely new than just to do the industrious work of refining that which has come before right that's a far easier proposal to write to say i'm just going to um find more x-ray binary black holes which is how we're looking for black holes before mm -hmm. well okay we know those exist so sure i'll give you some telescope time to look for that right but to do something completely new to build a completely new type of experiment is um is always more risky how have you maybe you could speak to that like how have you found that journey of risk in your in your own professional career and is it exciting to you has it been difficult um what's your journey been like Wow, what a question. So for me, I guess my mentality was always go big or go home, right? Because this is such an amazing field to be working in. And my options when I started uh, working on, you know, even, even in astronomy were to, you know, either work on LIGO uh, or pulsar timing array experiments. And I did in a year almost two years of work with LIGO data. And it already felt to me like things were pretty mature. And that mm. was, you know, back in the early 2010s, that there wasn't really a place where I could come in and say, like, I did a thing. Mm. And to me, it felt really important that if I'm following this passion of mine to study black holes, that I want to put a flag right in the ground and say like i did a thing yeah to own something of your own achievements yeah, yeah exactly and so for me it became clear that pulsar timing arrays had uh, a lot of a lot of work that we still needed to do in theory so i i came to my phd with a master's degree in cosmology and so in cosmology a lot of these tools had already been developed to deal with the cosmic microwave background and I took some of those tools and I imported them into uh, pulsar timing arrays to look for the gravitational wave background and to look for deviations from like this perfect flat 
isotropic mm-hmm. background and to look for anisotropies in it or little hot spots where mm-hmm. you'd have some black hole binaries that are closer than others. And that was completely new, right? And so like that kind of fundamental work still hadn't been done. And then since then I've really, you know, just tried to have a lot of fun. One of the professors gave me some really good advice at the University of Birmingham where I did my PhD and he was an experimentalist, but he said to me one day, he said, you know, Chiara, they don't pay us enough to not have fun. (laughs) So you might as well (laughs) just have fun. And it really stayed with me because it's true. You know, I think uh, we have really incredible skill sets and I think we're all very passionate people. And I think that's what also makes it really hard when it comes to writing grants and having, you know, 99% of them rejected because like you do have great ideas, but so do all of the other smartest people in the whole world that you're up against. And sometimes it feels so random, you know, when you get your feedback and sometimes it doesn't even make any sense. And so... It's really important to me to feel like I still have an emotional connection with my work and that and that I care about it. Um, in the last few years, though, since becoming a professor, I found a huge amount of joy in training my students mm. and showing them how to do what I do and also to see how they do things and asking them those questions and, you know, poking and prodding at their knowledge to see, you know, where they are. And then watching them develop their own ideas and then helping them on their path with their own ideas. And that to me has been incredibly rewarding as well. Yeah. And I know from speaking to students that you are a fantastic mentor. So I appreciate that point as well. And it's nice to be able to pass that along because I think we all uh, got to where we are because of enormous privilege of having mentors who guided us through to that point as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's such a lottery with who advises you to a certain extent as to where you end up. And I'm so grateful to the mentors I certainly had. Um, Mm. Yeah. And so this whole uh, journey you're on, I'm wondering, have you felt the, uh, that was kind of your own individual experience, but Mm -hmm. has the field itself evolved in terms of its perception from the broader field of astronomy. I feel like when I first heard you speak about this, I'd never heard of this idea and it really felt almost left field. And I'm sure people feel that way if they've not heard me talk about exomoons before. What, what, what? And um, was it a almost like a PR battle to get the rest of astronomy to think about because you you're in the mainstream now it feels like and it seems like you're about to hit the big time with this field so uh how has that how has the broader perception of this subfield of astronomy evolved i think that you know all of gravitational waves were it was very difficult to get people interested in it especially before detection before ligo made the first detection back in 2015 100 years <laughs> after, you know, Einstein uh, down. exactly yeah. 100 years after Einstein. And, you know, even Einstein didn't believe that they were detectable because they were so small. It was almost just like a mathematical curiosity. Mm. So it's really taken a huge amount of investment. And, you know, some estimates put building LIGO at something like $2 billion over the 40 years where it was, you know, being funded and operated and upgraded and all of the salaries. So it's a huge investment. Pulsar timing arrays, on the other hand, um, are a much 
newer idea, this idea of looking for a common signal in all of the pulsars was only published in 1983. And even, even so, that was assuming that the background was isotropic. And then my paper looking for anisotropy came out 30 years later, mm -hmm. right? And so the field was, I think, as you're pointing out, not exactly stagnant, but not flourishing. And so I think that it was a PR battle in order to get people to care about pulsar timing, even people in our own community, because my radio astronomer colleagues are all, you know, superstars in radio astronomy timing pulsars. Mm. Like they can do so much interesting physics just timing pulsars that looking for gravitational waves, even for them was this, uh, you know, corollary. It's like an addendum at the end, like, and I can do gravitational wave searches, but really you can do so much fun stuff just timing pulsars. So... It's really taken a lot of time to get people to care about this as an experiment that can actually do really interesting physics. Yeah, I guess so, so treating it more like it was the fluff, right? It was like, maybe this is extra thing and now it's actually becoming the stake, right? This, exactly. is, this is like potentially the main course. Exactly. Um, so maybe just to finish off, because uh, we're kind of wrapping up on time, but maybe you could, uh, you, you know, you've had this incredible journey professionally and yeah, remember your name, uh, listener, Chiara Mingarelli, because you're going to be, I'm sure lots of people will be hearing about uh, exciting stuff coming out of all of these experiments soon. But do you have um, any advice to astronomers or potential astronomers who are thinking about getting into this field? It often feels like all the cool stuff has been done, right? I remember feeling that way a little bit at college that uh, certainly in physics, like all the all the amazing stuff has been discovered. I wish I'd lived 100 years ago or something. It would have been far easier. Um, do you, how do you feel about the, the, the state of the future for a young person getting into astronomy and what advice would you have to them? So when I think about this, I think about it was, you know, uh, in the late 1800s, there was this very famous meeting of minds and all of these men had decided that really physics was done, mm -hmm. that they'd figured out everything <laughs> that there was to know, that this was really the end and didn't they do a good job? Pat and that was before the patting <laughs> themselves yeah. on the back. <laughs> this was before quantum mechanics and before general relativity, you know. So I always feel like we're at that place where, you know, we kind of feel like we've done all the cool things, but like what's dark matter? No right? one knows. <laughs> no, no one knows. Like we know that things look weird, galaxy rotation curves, lots of evidence for something that's dark matter. But what if we're just on the verge of another paradigm shift? Mm. That's also a possibility. There's there's so many questions that no one but these future scientists will even know how to ask. Yeah. And so I think that science is best when it's done by a diverse set of scientists who have different experiences and different points of view that just see things differently. This is when we really get our best science is when we're all mixed together, working on projects together. But it's easier said than done, right? There's a huge amount of privilege that even goes into knowing the fact that you can be a scientist. Yeah. I was very privileged. My dad is a math professor. So I grew up knowing what a professional research scientist looks like, knowing that I would have to apply for grants and what all that stuff looks like and mm -hmm. travel. But some people don't even know that you can be an astronomer as a mm -hmm. job. So I hope that people that are interested in that as, uh, as a career can 
pursue that path, that they can, you know, talk to professional scientists and understand how they got there. I think I just also want to point out that, you know, professors, most of us never left school, right? We have been in school our whole lives and we never left. So we're like the professional students and we (laughs) love school. So please talk to us about school. Because there's literally nothing else that we would rather do. And you all really care very deeply about what we're working on. And so if you know one or if you email one, depending on how busy you are, sometimes people can get back to you and talk to you. So I would tell them to explore what they're passionate about. But, you know, but don't be easily discouraged because it's super competitive. But if you really love it and you stick at it, you know, you can make it and it's totally worth it. It's great advice and lovely place to finish. Thank you so much for your time today. And I will have to have you back on because it sounds like there's a lot to come (laughs) in the near future that um, I'm certainly very excited to hear about. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. We'll stretch and squash your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, David. So that was my conversation with the wonderful Chiara Mingarelli. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I wanted to finish with a final thought, and that was on the idea of persistence, because I think we both have that in common, and it's something that I'm sure you too can relate to. So to give some context here, as I said at the top of the video, Chiara and I have both been looking for two very different things, in my case, exomoons, in her case, the background gravitational wave signal, two things that we know, or at least have very strong confidence should exist, and yet has not yet been conclusively discovered. And the point of discovering them is not to prove they exist, because as I said, we are almost certain of that, in my case, I mean, how could you possibly have planetary systems that lack moons, given how many moons we see in our own solar system? In Chiara's case, how could you possibly build supermassive black holes in the absence of mergers? You can't just start with a black hole that's a billion solar masses. There must be a process of merging smaller black holes together to make such gigantic things. So in both cases, the point isn't to prove this thing exists, but rather to characterize them, to understand the process by which they build, they originate, and they evolve. I mean, for the exomoons, we could potentially discover new habitable worlds, understand the uniqueness of our own moon, the moons of Jupiter, for instance. In Chiara's case, we can understand the spin of these black holes, we can understand the environment in which they sit in, how fast does this merging process happen, and understand really the ubiquity of supermassive black holes more generally. So in both cases, huge amounts we could learn. In fact, one would even say both of them are new windows into the universe itself things which currently we really have basically no information about. So, hugely important science. And yet, and yet, despite that, dear listener, there is, of course, a lot of resistance, a lot of struggles, a lot of obstacles to realizing that dream. Because when you're proposing for telescope time, proposing for funding, and this could equally be for a business as it is for science, um, proposing to try and recruit people, to try and get you know students to work on your project or to employ people for a project, it's much easier, it's much easier on the other side to fund, to invest, to engage in activities which are already bearing fruit. So in the case of gravitational waves, that would be to invest in LIGO. And that has clearly been happening. And I 
don't think that's the wrong thing to do. Clearly makes sense to invest in LIGO. It is discovering dozens of new binary black hole systems and neutron star mergers. We're learning a lot from that. But at the same time, we shouldn't ignore this completely new way of discovering gravitational waves, the background signal, which would reveal an entirely new orthogonal way of understanding the impact of gravitational waves, the, the messages that are being carried on these waves to us. So that can be hard because it's much easier to go for the short term than the long term, the thing which is already delivering fruit than the thing which promises fruit down the pipeline. We have both, I think, struggled with that in our careers to convince and to persuade. And yet we are both extremely passionate about why each of our topics are so important for the future improvement of science, for our improving our own knowledge of the, the human race, our understanding of the cosmos. And sincerely, I believe that. I know Chiara does too. And I think this belief and this persistence that you have to have is something which I hope, I hope, translates beyond just science. In fact, I'm sure it does. I'm sure many of you are starting a business for the first time, are planning out some personal ambition, maybe like a wedding next year against all of the odds or something. You have a difficult family, or maybe you're trying to learn a new skill. In my case, I'm actually learning to become a pilot at the moment. And the same sense, you have to have a lot of persistence in all of those things to be successful. And it's nice when the story is simple, you turn up in the lab, you get discovery on the first day, great, that's a lovely, neat, tidy story. In reality, that's not usually how it is. It usually is a messy process, zigzagging, rejections, some progress, then two steps back. That's usually how science is. And I think we have both directly experienced that. And I hope that is something that you took away from this conversation and also took away how persistence can lead to results because trust me, Kiara has a result coming very soon and this podcast is hopefully very well timed for that. So you will surely be hearing her name in the news in the next few months, the next years. Just look out for that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you want to support what we do here, the Cool Worlds podcast, honestly, the best way is to head to our website, coolworldslab.com and you go to slash support, and you can click on there and support my research team. Not the podcast directly, but my research team. If you support the podcast directly, it means I have to spend less time writing proposals, applying for grants, things like this, and it gives me more time to actually work on these kind of outreach projects with you. So that's the best way to support us. And then you can have some confidence that your money is actually going directly into research. I mean, how fun is that? Your money is supporting real research. In fact, you can even claim it if you're a US citizen as a tax deductible expense. So you can go through that, a charitable donation, I should say, and you can go through that and fill out the forms and Columbia will help you with that. So that's our podcast today. Please do look out for future episodes. We have many great conversations down the pipeline. And until next time, stay thoughtful and stay curious. <laughs>